pray briefly, Lord, please impart your word now, your heart and mind to your people through this unworthy vessel. Make me your instrument of grace today. Amen. So last Sunday, I talked to you about the spiritual journey of the Shiloh family in terms of the biblical narrative and the Advent story. Um, in, a, in a moment of insanity, I thought, I'm going to see if I can weave three or four things together into one message and do it as quickly as possible. And uh, I'm gratified that when I heard Adrian speaking earlier, apparently I was more successful than I thought I was. So thanks, Adrian, for that encouragement. But from that, you would have gained the understanding that our journey as a church family is very consistent with Scripture. In fact, our greater church family in this community, that is the capital C Church, what, uh, what we like to say sometimes around here is capital C church means the same thing as small C Catholic, right? Catholics with the small C means universal, the body of Christ, all Christians, all who are saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ and filled with his Holy Spirit through baptism and so forth, then we are the body of Christ or the capital C church, the universal church. And in that sense, that's why we can comfortably call each other family. And what we realize is that throughout God's relationship with God's people, there have been certain patterns that have been very consistent and we've been living them too. And so our journey as a Shiloh church family hasn't been all that different from the Israelites exodus from slavery to Egypt. Now, in the Bible, Egypt represents the world of the flesh. It represents the absence of the one true God's authority over your life. So in Egypt, all the gods were made up of various tactile earthly things. They were things of the flesh. And the most uh, offensive was the very God that ruled Egypt. And so in a way, the final plague against Egypt was also directed at the people of God because they actually feared the false God more than the true God of their ancestors, the one creator God of all things. So their exodus was not only from slavery to, uh, to the Egyptians, but slavery to a completely wrong mindset, their whole view of creation, their whole view of, of life, and, and all of that was, was holding them back. And so God was setting them free. And in that sense, what we witnessed in the life of this church family and many Christians throughout the ages is this constant struggle of moving back and forth from being more committed to the flesh, more committed to the self, more uh, fearful and, and obedient to the world, thinking that world leaders and fearful tyrants are more frightening and more 
have more power than God, recognizing that uh, we have been afraid of the world and the world has dominated us is when we finally get free, when we stop trying to win the approval of the world, when we stop trying to be uh, famous in the eyes of other people and other worldly institutions. You know, these are all things from which you have to make an exodus. You have to declare yourself separate from those. And in the embodiment of that uh, whole concept is embodied in the Ten Commandments, which are basically rules about our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and how the two are intertwined. And by setting those standards, God is saying, obey me, stand with me, and it will be well with you and with the people that you meet and, and live with, with your family. So that was basically what I tried to say last week in a nutshell, is the church here at Shiloh has lived that journey. We've experienced it. We experienced in our exodus and wilderness wandering people who thought about what we were doing and why we were doing it and disagreed. And so some went back to Egypt and some died in the wilderness and it was hard. It was hard. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically, but there is a sense that what we feel we've lost grieves us, but it also shows us that when you decide to fix your eyes on the pillar of fire and cloud that represents the light of God, you're going to have some people who won't follow you there. They'll only see the giants in the promised land. They'll only see the endless emptiness of the desert. They'll only see the manna that comes every night so that you never go hungry, but you also have to develop a real taste for manna. They'll only see those things and they will grow weary and they will be afraid and they'll fall away. And so what happens over time is there is a group of the fully committed followers who enter into the promise. This is why I often quote to you my, one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible, but especially the Old Testament, where on the edge of the promised land, just across the Jordan River from the land of the promise, Joshua said to the people, now you look over there, they have fearful gods, they have giants, they have all kinds of things that should you go in there, you will either conquer or you will submit to. As for me and my house, I will follow the Lord. And those were the ones who went into the promise. And so we've lived that. We've lived that. And that very exclusivity has been a problem for some of us. We live in a world where exclusivity feels wrong, where, where a commitment to a scriptural standard feels wrong, where everything is upside down. And we're choosing to walk upright in a world that is tilting really far to one side. And it's not easy. You ever been on a ship that's tossing and turning in the sea? Staying upright is quite the challenge. And this is what we're doing. 
Now this week, as we move into uh, the second Sunday of Advent, we remember that Advent was a, uh, a time before Christ came when people anticipated a new thing. They anticipated the coming of the Messiah. They all had different ideas about what that would be like, but the truth is, is several generations could only hope that they would witness it, and then they didn't. You'll remember the story of Simeon, who on Jesus' baptism at eight days old got to see the fulfillment that most of his contemporaries didn't live to see. So it's not always a vision fulfilled for the sake of the ones who begin the process of moving in that direction. Some will die in the wilderness in faith committed to the promise. Some will not follow all the way through to the committed goal simply because time ran out. Where time matters, that's something we have to face up to. But those of us who are followers of Christ, who are born-again believers, those of us who are children of God are not to think in this terminal way, we're meant to think in an eternal way. We learn that because we've been born again, since we've been received by God through Christ into his eternal heavenly household, we're not terminal anymore. <laughs> Our bodies will fail unless Christ should return before that time, and we then will enter paradise, and we will be eternal even from the day we're born again. And so in a sense, we have to remember that, especially when we work towards things that we may not see fulfilled in this lifetime. So our vision for the future of the church is like that. Now, you'll notice that I put uh, the menorah on the altar today. We are in the midst of Hanukkah right now, and Hanukkah is a celebration in Judaism that Jesus participated in. Uh, it was also called the Feast of, of uh, Dedication or the Festival of Dedication. And it stems from a incident where the, the, the temple, which is emblematic of, of the house of worship, however it stands, was completely taken over by secular people, the Greeks. And the significance of this story cannot be overstated. I cannot overstate the significance because the world that we live in, the world of the flesh, for all intents and purposes, is the world of the Greeks. If you do the philosophical study, if you just think about what most people in this world value, it's the same things the Greeks valued. They valued youth and vitality. They valued beauty of the flesh, they, the, the temporary nature of the flesh. All you got to do is watch TV and you can tell that we're still living in Greek culture. Look at Judaism, for example, and you see people who uh, revere the elders, who look at an old man with a long beard and a bald head and they say, oh, there's a guy that might know something where the Greeks look at you and they see an old man with a long beard and they think that he has nothing to offer anymore. And so this battle between the Greek ideology and the Judeo-Christian ideology is as live and well today as it's ever been. 
Let me get you back to the menorah here. I uh, would like you to read some scripture with me if you want to follow along. You'll find these scriptures uh, in your Bible, Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40, page 78 in your pew Bible. Put your finger on that one. And then there's just one verse in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 12, and you'll find that on page 1218. Now, I, I'm going to have you mark two because, well, the Revelation verse is really easy. Just go to the back cover of the Bible and flip forward a couple of pages and you'll be there. So it's page 78, Exodus 25, verse 31, and page 1218, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. So I just want to read these to you real quickly to put this story of the Hanukkah and the lamp in perspective. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. This is Exodus. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms with calyx and flower on the other branch. So like almond blossoms with their calyx and flowers and calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece of one piece and a whole of it in single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And you shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so to give light on the space in front of it. Its, law, its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern of them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In other words, God has just given them a blueprint for this lampstand that's going to go in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple where they will meet with God. Now, I just want to read one more verse with you. Revelation 1, chapter 1, that is verse 12. And I just want you to see that this is, this is there. This is the revelation. This is the, the end of the church era. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. In other words the same menorah was in the temple of God. Now you're looking at a picture here that we saw in Israel. Um, artisans have already created the menorah that will go in the temple should they ever have an opportunity to build it again. And that then is a full size, not a replica, but the actual one that they intend to use built to the same dimensions and same specifications we just read. So here's the story in a nutshell about the Hanukkah menorah. I'm sharing this story with you for two very specific reasons. Number one is I really 
intentionally want to show solidarity with the people of Israel right now. I have, since October 7th, been in prayer for them every day. And I want you to understand that in the sense that uh, the Christian story is incomplete without the Jewish story, that we are children of the same father. The heavenly father is the same. Don't let anybody try to tell you there's one God and that God is the same no matter what they call him. Allah is not the same God. The gods of the various other religions of the world are not the same God, but the God of Judah and the God of the Christians is the one heavenly father from whom Jesus Christ came. This is scripturally sound. And so for us to deny or to disregard or care little about what happens to the people of Israel is essentially like not caring about our own kin. And so I do, and I know most all of you do as well. So we light the Hanukkah candles today in remembrance of solidarity with the people of Israel. Because right now they are a light in the midst of a great darkness. A great darkness that will in time take over the world. And so we too have to be light in the world. We light the Advent candles as a way of not so much remembering the birth of Jesus, but the return of Jesus, which is light that the world desperately needs. The center candle on the uh, menorah is called the shamash, and it's the one from which all the lights take their light. So the one in the middle is the source of the light, and then from it, you light all the other candles. The candles represent the days of the Seleucids overtaking of Jerusalem in particular and outlawing Judaism in the land. And in other words, replacing the Judeo-Christian ideal with the world of the flesh, which is Greek. It's all about bodies. <laughs> I was going to say something else and I see all these beautiful young faces, you know, but to understand the Greek is to say that the world they live in is R and X rated, okay? The, the, the Greek ideals. I'm not throwing out everything about the Greeks except to say that they are in direct tension with Judeo-Christian beliefs. And in this particular story, the Greeks have driven the Jews out of their own temple and they've erected abominable false gods in the temple that was dedicated to Yahweh, the one God. And the Maccabees were a family group of Jews who said enough, we will take our stand and if we die, so be it. And so they fought to drive the Greeks out of the house of God. I hope you see the parallels here because it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. They drove the Greeks out of the house of God and then of course the Greeks laid siege to the house of God and while they were in there, the people said, we will relight the menorah, the lampstand, and we will return this place to its devotion to the one God 
the God of our ancestors, the one who opposes the Greeks. Only problem was their lamps were out of oil, but they lit them anyway. And so the miracle was that the lamp remained lit for eight days despite having no oil. And then they were able to generate more oil and relight it properly with oil. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that God's light came in the midst of darkness. Now, just see where I'm going here, I hope. There was darkness in the spiritual sense because light in the Bible represents truth, absolute love, grace, promise, hope. It represents the very presence of God. When people encountered Jesus in his more native form, it was so bright they could barely stand it. Light is the sign of God's presence, and his presence lets nothing hide in the shadows. Darkness, then, is the opposite. It represents evil. It represents things that hide. It represents the things we do in the dark and hope nobody sees. It represents the darkness of ideas that lead to chaos, that lead to oppression, death, and decay. And this is what happened to the temple during this period, about 400 years before the coming of Christ. There was a darkness in the very temple where God once dwelled. And when they took it back and they were bold enough to risk everything to drive out the darkness and return the light, God maintained the light. And that's what Hanukkah is all about. It's a festival of light. And it means more than just candlelight. It means the presence of God. Is that not what we strive for to church family? To drive out the darkness? To bring light? What if you are the center candle wherever you are and you are meant to light the other fires? Our challenge going forward, and this is my last word, and this may be the closest thing to a report you're going to hear from me in this service. You have heard a lot about the life of this church, and you've heard a lot of positive things. And for the most part, what you heard about was the, God, the way God has used the temporal things. Now, I want to issue to you a divine challenge. And I ask you, I beg you, don't take this lightly. This coming year, we need to find a way to fill our pews with young people. We need to fill our pews with young people. And I mean every Sunday. Thank you for being here, guys. But most of you will go somewhere else next Sunday, I imagine. But we want to fill these pews with people who need to meet the Lord we worship, the one that we serve. He's the God of the Bible. He's the Savior in the Bible. We need to fill these pews with our sons and daughters. And that's a hard thing to hear. And if you can't fill these pews with your sons and daughters because they live somewhere else, can you work 
tirelessly to make sure they're filling a pew somewhere. Now, as I say that, I want to make sure you understand that I heartily acknowledge, I honestly, painfully acknowledge that there are many young people who expect a negative experience when they walk into a church, and many times their expectations will be fulfilled. <laughs> church, we've done a lousy job. I mean, collectively, over the last 50 or 60 years, and we've not presented the young with an image of God's people that motivates them to hang out with us. And it ranges everywhere from true hypocrisy to simply not being aware of their perceptions. But we have to work on all of it. In the coming year, that's the thing I want us to focus on. I call it evangelism and outreach, but honestly, it's getting your sons and daughters in church. If you figure out what that takes, you will help get this church filled with more young people. Start with how would you get your sons and daughters and your grandchildren in a church? What would you do if you knew their eternal soul depended on you what would you sacrifice even if it meant that you'd never see the promised land? What would you do to save the people that are the most precious to you? Not by your will, but by their will. Because that's really the only way they can be saved is to surrender their will to the Lord. This has got to be our mission going forward. To be disciples means to be that desperately devoted to the Lord and to seek disciples means to be that desperate for the people who are lost to find the Lord. And I fear we're not desperate enough and we haven't been for a long time. And there's nobody left to take that problem on for us because we haven't reproduced and so my call is that we dedicate ourselves for the coming years to refilling the population of this church with believers, with born-again, saved believers. And the only way that's going to happen is if we all care passionately about making that happen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you said anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This, Lord, is what you have asked of us. This is your command to go courageously, unafraid, untroubled, not concerned about whether we are accepted, more concerned than 
anything, Lord, is that we have told the truth and shed light for your sake. Amen.